0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. I'm the titular Sean.
1: And I'm the very titular Carrie.
0: It's the show that takes you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre and tries to find an answer. Hi, Caroline. Hi. How are you today?
1: Um, well, my tummy hurts a little bit.
0: hmm
1: mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, But it's a very nice day. We finally are out of daylight savings. Mm-hmm. Right? We're saving it. Yeah, we are now. saving it. We saved it. it.
0: Yeah. Uh, the Senate, <laughs> I think, just passed a bill to... Uh... Well,
1: I was going to say, those of us with SAD, seasonal affective disorder, what up? Um, we'll be very happy to know that these, yes, the Senate just passed a bill to make basically springtime hours um, for daylight savings. I mean, there's no daylight savings. They want to keep the springtime hours all year long.
0: Right. Um which would eliminate all this pointless back and forth jumping. Although I do, I do love the fall back night when you get the extra hour. It is beautiful.
1: Just sleep an extra hour.
0: But then you just lose it on the other side. It sucks. <laughs> exactly. it, it sucked this time. It was a Saturday, and it was like, oh, are we going to bed this late? <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. It, it switched uh, before we even made it to bed, so we were a little confused. But yeah, um, so it has to go to the house and then the president. But I think even if it does pass, it's not going to start until November 2023. Mm-hmm. But I'm excited. Um,
0: well, so you've got one more, at least one more period of uh, daylight savings to get through mm-hmm. here. Um, yeah, but, but I'm excited y- about it. Great. Well, look at you, Carrie, playing through, uh, playing sick like Michael Jordan with that famous flu, <laughs> the flu game.
1: Uh, with the the infected pizza or whatever, <laughs> yeah, that his yeah. conspiracy theory in the is. last
0: dance. He says, uh, "Yeah, that some some fans, some jazz fans, brought him an infected pizza." We'll have, to co-
1: <laughs> we'll have to cover those accusations when we do some sports conspiracies. Oh, maybe a sports
0: consp- uh, conspiracy roundup would be a good episode. Oh, absolutely! I'm sure there's a, there's a ton of stuff there.
1: Mm-hmm. And if you like uh, sports conspiracies. Or things to do with sports and uh, the spooky, you can head on over to our Patreon and maybe throw in a few bucks and you can get access to our Curse of the Bambino Mm mini-sode.
0: And you can also listen to our Walt Disney episode for some truly uh, grisly details about uh, the possible location (laughs) of Ted Williams' head.
1: Yeah, spoiler alert, there's a tuna can involved.
0: Uh, Anyway, uh, that's not the horrible thing we're talking about this week. Uh, (laughs) Caroline, we've spent almost a month now with quietly creeping horrors like the slow death at sea aboard a drifting lifeboat Hmm. or the apparition of a mourning lover in a a nearby cemetery. Mm -hmm. I wanted to liven things up a little bit with some old fashioned axe murder. I don't know how else to put it. Well, that's grim too, Sean. It is, but it's grim in a different way. Uh, axe murders are, are, they feel like the most, in a way, the most violent of murders, don't they? This, I mean, short of what a, a wood chipper, maybe <laughs> they're pretty rough because of the force involved and the brutality. It's, it's axes aren't as sharp as knives or uh, uh, swords, uh, I, obviously. So
1: it's like stabbing mixed with blunt. Force trauma?
0: Yeah. Axes are made for splitting wood. So mm-hmm. the injuries they leave on human beings are, are horrible, whether they're fatal or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it is uh, with an eye toward that that we are going to...
1: This is your idea of livening things up?
0: And so uh, maybe I should reword. And so with uh, <laughs> with that in mind, we are going to embark on two to three weeks, Caroline, of... Jeez of axe murder discussion. It's it's kind of a topic we've um, flirted with before on this podcast with Hinterkaifeck and with the Keddie Cabin murders. Those are mm. both axe murders of whole families. Mm-hmm. And we will touch on another one of those, perhaps the most famous one, at least in the US, with the Velisca axe murder um, next week. Mm-hmm. Next week's episode. Um, this week, we are going to talk about one of America's first known serial killers, or certainly a very early one.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and this is, I'm sure you've heard of him, Caroline, the Axeman of New Orleans.
1: He's the Axeman.
0: Is that a real song?
1: I don't know. Isn't that like uh, Scatman? The, oh, the YouTube. yes, okay. I always think of that.
0: Well, because there is an Axeman's jazz, but... Uh, oh, my. Mm-hmm. We'll, uh, we'll hear a little clip of that later on in the episode.
1: Oh, and I love that uh, Beatles song as well, Axeman.
0: Well, it's one of the great side one-track ones of all time, Mm Carolyn. The Axeman of New Orleans was an early American serial killer of at least seven and maybe more than 12 victims, um, known only by his preferred method of murder since the crimes remain unsolved to this day.
1: And he was what, big on suffocation?
0: Uh, yes, exactly. You've you've guessed his MO uh, perfectly, Carrie. No, the Axeman man would break into the homes of his victims, uh, usually through a back door, and then bludgeon them in their sleep with the titular axe um, before leaving with all of his break-in tools and the axe itself discarded in the backyard. Mm a seemingly random crime um, that left neighborhoods of New Orleans utterly panicked uh, as these crimes mounted.
1: I could imagine.
0: Uh, a version of the Axeman, if, if this sounds familiar to the listener, but they can't quite place it, um, a version of the Axeman appeared in American Horror Story in that horrible coven season that took place in New Orleans. You say horrible, but that's a lot of people's favorite. Well, I'd, okay. I, I, I didn't need to see... I didn't need Precious around for as long as she was, is all, is all I'm saying.
1: We get it. You hate women.
0: Let the record show I love women. <laughs> um, Danny Huston, or Houston? How do you say that actor's Houston. name? Houston. Danny Houston, uh, who always portrays like a an amoral, evil, slightly charming um, grease bag. Mm. He's great at it. Uh, he showed up as the ghost of the Axeman on uh, American Horror Story Coven, which uh, you probably recall.
1: I saw it a long time ago, but I remember him being on the show.
0: Now, the Axeman possibly engaged in, or I would venture to say probably engaged in, two separate crime sprees in New Orleans. But it was the second uh, that raised the public alarm and uh, kind of created the legend of the New Orleans Axeman that we have today.
1: And people think that this is the same person?
0: Yes. And um, when I lay it out for you, I think it'll be... It seems a lot like it was the same person, yes. Hmm. Um, now, a lot of our facts for this week come from the work of Merriam C. Davis, a historian who wrote The Axeman of New Orleans, The True Story. Well,
1: it sums it up. <laughs>
0: um, this has been covered by other true crime writers uh, throughout ta- throughout the century uh, since these crimes happened, but um, this is kind of the most comprehensive uh, work that I've seen. Um, the crimes.
1: Now, because you, you keep saying The Axeman and not like... Joe Smith, Uh, does that mean that this is an unsolved, unidentified type of thing?
0: That is correct. Uh, Like a sort of American Jack the Ripper, and maybe even more on that connection later on. Because this isn't too far from the time of Jack the Ripper. Mm. Um, The second, I'm going to start with this second wave of crimes, because that's when this really became uh, something the public was aware of. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, on December 22nd, 1917, Anna Andolina woke up to her husband, grocer Epifanio Andolina. Uh, there's going to be a lot of very Italian names in this story, uh, because these murders, um, many of them, anyway, took place in the French Quarter, which at the time um it was, was
1: Italian. It was
0: an Italian neighborhood, yeah.
1: Very interesting.
0: Well, what happened was, what had happened was, in the second half of the 1800s, Italians, uh, Italian immigrants, becoming Italian Americans, flocked to the South to fill in the hard labor jobs on plantations that were kind of being opened up by the destruction of slavery. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, Italians with no other prospects in this country came to do those really brutal hard jobs. Um, But it was a job that you could maybe put aside a little money for yourself and eventually... Um, open a business and many of these uh, uh, Italians who had put some money aside for themselves moved out of the country and uh, when they came to New Orleans they settled in the um, a lot of them I think were abandoned at this point till these uh, Italian immigrants moved in and uh, took over these old French um, townhouses in the French Quarter. So that was very much an Italian neighborhood. Um, So Epifanio Andolina grocer was on the ground when his wife woke up, there was a man standing over him, wielding a hatchet in one hand and a revolver in the other. Oh. As Anna sat up, the intruder pointed his pistol at her, ordered her quiet, and then whacked his her husband a few more times with the axe. Then he turned and left the room, and she heard her sons, John and Salvador, start to cry from the next room. Oh. Anna obviously rushes in to check on the boys, and meanwhile, the intruder had apparently like moved through a different room, then back through her bedroom, and out the back door.
1: Were they okay?
0: Yeah, she found the two boys crying and on the ground, out of bed, both having been hit on the head with the axe, but not um, not badly injured. They both recovered.
1: Were they hit with the hard or the, um, the I,
0: sharp part? It said bashed. I think they were hit with the blunt side of the
2: Oof, axe. Well,
0: and it was. It's almost like he ran in there to throw up a distraction. Like here, you got to check on the kids, and then he escaped out the back. Uh, nothing was taken from the home, and the man had gotten in by chiseling a panel out from the back door to slip in. Hmm. Um, both the panel and the chisel were left behind on the door outside. Now Epifanio and both of his sons would recover from their injuries, Oh. but obviously a terrifying thing for this uh, family to wake up to.
1: Yeah, absolutely, but thank God they survived.
0: Uh, yeah, thank God. Now, it was only five months later, May 23rd of 1918, that another Italian grocer, Joseph Maggio, and his wife Catherine were attacked while sleeping in their bed. And in this case, the attack would prove fatal. The couple's throats were both cut with a straight razor while they were sleeping, and then the intruder bashed both of their heads with an axe before he left. Uh, Maybe to confuse the cause of death, it's not totally clear. Or he oh. had
1: to get that axe in there somehow.
0: Yeah, I guess. He's like, I am the axe. This is my thing.
1: Ugh, how terrible.
0: Now, Catherine's throat had been cut so deeply that her head was nearly severed from its shoulders. Oh. Joseph, on the other hand, survived for roughly two hours laying there in bed until his brother Andrew, who lived in the apartment next door, says he was summoned by the gurgling sounds, uh, oh. gurgling and groaning sounds of his brother. Horrible. So the brothers, Andrew and Jake, I think it was actually Andre and Jacob. These are uh, super, super Italian guys, like first generation um, Italian-Americans. They discover the couple, and Joseph, they said, died just minutes after his brothers discovered him.
1: At least he wasn't alone.
0: Um, I suppose so. Police were immediately suspicious of Andrew. They were like, what, you, you live next door and you didn't hear the intruder come in? You didn't hear any of this? Now, Andrew said that he was leaving for the Navy, like, the next day or very soon, and so he had been at a going-away party and come home really drunk, um, and he, he said, I wouldn't have heard anything at, you know, around 2 in the morning. hmm The murder weapon, shedding more suspicion, was found to be a straight razor belonging to Andrew, who owned a barber shop on Camp Street. And one of Andrew's employees said that Andrew had recently brought that razor home to have a nick repaired.
2: Hmm.
0: Uh, so police actually did suspect him for a little while, but they uh, couldn't poke holes in his story and um, eventually moved on to the nondescript man that Andrew <laughs> said he had seen lingering near the premises uh, when he came home.
1: What would his motive have been?
0: There wasn't one. I mean, I, I really don't think this guy did kill his brother and... Uh, yeah. Wife. Yeah, that's a weird,
1: weird choice.
0: And... um. A lot of the... Well, we'll get into it later, but this is one that I do think the X-Man probably did. Um, Yeah. And maybe his crimes were accelerating because uh, just a month later, on June 27th, grocer Louis Besame and his mistress, Harriet Lowe, were sleeping in the quarters at the back of his grocery store when Besame was hit with with a hatchet over his right temple. Uh, When police arrived, both he and Lowe were unconscious, um, she from a hack over her left ear. Um, They were discovered by delivery driver John Zanka at 7 in the morning, uh, both on the ground and, of course, bleeding from their heads. A hatchet belonging to Besame was found in the bathroom, um, but Besame said that he was sleeping when the attack began.
1: And they both survived?
0: They did both. Well, um, they both survived for some time. Police arrested 41-year-old Louis Louis Ubicon in the attack. He was a uh, black man who worked in the store, despite the fact that the... Sorry, there's so many names in this one. Harriet (laughs) Lowe, the mistress, Mm -hmm. had said that the attacker had been mixed race, she thought. But the police just arrested this guy who worked at the store who was a black guy. Because uh, they said he gave conflicting accounts of where he had been that morning. Okay. Um, now, robbery had been given by the police as the only possible motive, although there was nothing of value missing from the store. So, they're, doing a, they're knocking it out of the park so far.
1: <laughs> I mean, yeah, some, sometimes people just like killing.
0: Harriet Lowe had taken a nasty blow to the head and was in and out of consciousness in the hospital. Um, that's why police initially dismissed her, uh, statement that it, she thought it was a, a guy of mixed race or a lighter-skinned guy, because, uh, police said she was hysterical from her injuries. And I don't know, she did say a lot of things. Lowe later said in the hospital <laughs> that it may have been Besame who attacked her. Oh. And meanwhile, investigators had found a trunk in his shop that was full of letters in German, Russian, and Yiddish. And so putting two and two together, these local New Orleans cops immediately arrested Besame on suspicion of being a German spy.
1: Just because he spoke German?
0: Yep. He had all those letters that they couldn't read. And uh, this lady said maybe he hit her with an axe.
1: I mean, (coughs) maybe find a German that could translate them.
0: He was released two days later, and (laughs) the two lead investigators on that case were demoted from their posts for unacceptable police work. Yeah, it's fair um meanwhile a small media firestorm developed around this uh case because they got wind that low was besame's mistress and not his wife meanwhile the wife like came back from out of town and uh he got in trouble for for cheating but also uh you know was dealing with suspicion around this murder that had happened right next to him um then Lowe was released from the hospital and immediately moved back into the home that she was sharing with Bezeme because his wife had shown him the door. So
1: much drama. Uh,
0: and meanwhile, she had to have a reconstructive surgery to fix the damage to her, like, head and face. And uh, a botched surgery would, it sounds like, ultimately take her life because she died in the hospital uh, a couple of months later. But before that, she once again said that Bezeme had attacked her. Wow. Um, Lots of twists and turns. Yeah. So he was charged with the murder of Harriet Lowe and spent nine months in jail. But the jury took only 10 minutes to acquit him on May 1st, 1919.
1: Was the hatchet that was found in the bathroom the weapon?
0: The hatchet that was... uh, Yes, that was the murder weapon.
1: So that's interesting. So it seems like this guy is...
0: Using weapons of in. Yeah.
1: So... (laughs) What does he do if they don't have an axe?
0: Well, a few times we'll see the word meat axe, and a lot of these crimes are taking place in groceries, so he probably can usually find something sharp.
1: What an interesting way to choose your victims.
0: Well, um, let's talk about grocers, because I have mentioned I think we've had three victims and three Italian grocers, right? Yep. Uh, So, according to the Smithsonian Institute, Uh, Italian immigrants owned 7% of the grocery stores in New Orleans in 1880. That was, you know, almost 40 years before this. Uh, Now, by 1900, they owned 19% of the grocery stores in New Orleans. And by 1920, just a couple of years after this, they would own 50% of the grocery stores in New Orleans. So those same Italian immigrants who had been working the plantations for a few decades were putting aside some money, now able to own businesses, and this was the business that many of them had moved into.
1: Well, my people know their food.
0: That's true, but uh, <laughs> they also were not really considered white by the white inhabitants of New Orleans yeah. yet. Uh, they weren't they were sort of considered above black people who were unfortunately still treated uh, very badly, obviously, under um, basically a Jim Crow system, mm-hmm. um, and but they were not treated as as like full citizens with all of the the rights you would expect. Yep. Um, Decatur Street, which was right in the middle of the French Quarter and home to many of these Italian homes and businesses, was nicknamed Vendetta Alley. Um, because a- apparently the uh, Italian, the Sicilians specifically in the neighborhood uh, who are described uh, by histories of the time as tough and clannish um, would find that they didn't get a lot of help from the cops and end up settling their disputes the old-fashioned way.
1: Well, if you're, n- if you're not being provided assistance, how else are you supposed to do things?
0: Exactly right. But I'm just giving you an idea of what the vibe in the French Quarter at the time.
1: We're part Sicilian, Sean. Would you describe my family as tough and clannish?
0: Uh, yeah. Those are two words I would use. Yeah, absolutely. Tough. Sticking together.
1: Well, I, I mean, most families should do that, right?
0: Yeah, and like with all of your past boyfriends, from what I understand, when I first met your dad, he <sighs> positioned me like under the, the rifle in the living room. Well. To give me a talking to. So yeah, he's an intimidating guy.
1: My great-grandfather was uh, invited to be in the mafia, and he turned it down.
0: not too much, Carrie. Loose lips, loose lips. did he? (laughs) Now, on August 10th, 1918, it could be that the Axeman struck again. We don't know that all of these crimes were committed by him, and I don't know that this man was a grocer, not that everyone the Axeman attacked necessarily was a grocer, but an elderly Italian man, Joseph Romano, was living with his nieces, Pauline and Mary Bruno, in the uh, French Quarter. Pauline and Mary were awoken the night of August 10th by commotion in their uncle's room next door to them. They uh, rushed in to find Joseph with two open wounds in his head (sighs) and the assailant fleeing out the back door. Now, they said they saw a dark-skinned, heavy-set man with a slouched hat and a dark suit. Um, I'll note here that every physical description of the Axeman is of a light-skinned or white man, except for this description. So either bad vision or, or different guy would be my guess. But you know, It's also night
1: time. I mean, could mm-hmm. be shadows. Everyone He's wearing looks a hat. Shadowy.
0: Now Romano was able to walk to the ambulance once it arrived with these two gaping holes in his head, um, but he ultimately died from the trauma two days later. His home had been ransacked, but police found nothing of value had been taken. Oh, and I take that back. I am pretty sure this one was our guy because there was a bloody axe left in the backyard and a back door panel had been found chiseled away for the assailant to slip in through the back.
1: Was it Romano's
0: axe? That, I don't know. I don't have information on that. Hmm. But he did leave it behind. Now panic began to erupt in New Orleans as it became clear a maniac killer was on the loose.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, what was the vibe by like kind of, I guess, the, the upper classes? Were they thinking, oh, these are just like immigrant murders. We don't really care. Or was there actual fear by like people uh, who were more wealthy or more well-off?
0: well off? Af- well, after this one, once the bodies are starting to pile up. Um, Panic did start to, because earlier in August, sorry, actually five days before this murder, uh, there had been another murder that I, I, this one I don't think was related. Um, But a 28-year-old pregnant woman named Anna Schneider had been attacked early in the morning by a dark figure standing over her bed who bashed her in the face repeatedly. Mm. Um, She was discovered after midnight when her husband came home late from work with her scalp cut open and her face all covered in blood. She remembered nothing else about the attack.
1: She survived?
0: And gave birth to a healthy baby girl two days later.
1: Damn. Yeah. Badass.
0: Um, I'm sorry, and maybe not an axe. I've just got axes on the brain, but police said the... <laughs>
1: Subst- I'm not going to make that joke. <laughs> the likely...
0: Oh, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> the likely weapon in this case was a lamp, they said, that had been moved from a nearby table. That She was just hit in the face repeatedly with that. Mm. Um... An ex-con named James Gleason was arrested after fleeing police who approached him to question him about the incident. Um, He was released because there was no evidence at all. Maybe he just wasn't a fan. And uh, the lead investigators, with basically nothing to give the public about, like, we have a guy, uh, started speculating publicly that maybe all these murders are connected. We've got a maniac on the loose. (laughs) And while Anna Schneider's attack doesn't fit the M.O. of our killer... Uh, they were correct that the previous murders were likely all connected, mm-hmm. as was Joseph Romano's on the 10th. So, after the Romano murder went public, panic sort of erupted in New Orleans. Um, the police began receiving tons of reports of men with axes lur- lurking in dark alleys. Mm-hmm. Uh, several men called the police to report they had found axes in their backyards or um, you know chisels or other tools that you could use to get into a home. Um, but, interestingly, among all of the panic, and maybe because of all the gangs of armed men literally patrolling the streets at night, no more killings were attributed to the Axeman that year. Too much heat. Too much heat, maybe. But there was a lot of speculation, as police superintendent Frank Mooney said the city was dealing with a murderous degenerate who gloats over blood.
2: Yeah. Uh, <laughs>
0: A retired, uh, it was noted that a lot of the victims were Italian, or all of the victims. Yes. And a retired detective named John D'Antonio hypothesized publicly that um, not only were the murders connected, but they were likely committed by the same person who had killed several people back in 1911 in Uh a similar manner. D'Antonio described to the newspapers a person of dual personalities who killed without motive. A quote, Real life Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. That was
1: like the epitome of horror at this time. Right
0: Now, as anyone who's seen like Mindhunter on, uh, Netflix? Netflix, yeah. on Netflix will know, um, you know, until like the early 70s, the idea of a serial killer wasn't really, the modern idea of a serial killer wasn't really in the police lexicon or the public consciousness. Mm-hmm. Stuff like Jack the Ripper was just like, oh, this was weird. But there wasn't like a name or a profile for this behavior.
1: Yeah, and there wasn't the the greater public knowledge, um, and even you know probably to some police of like, well, sometimes people kill because they like to do it.
0: Right. <laughs> so, and and you don't see anyone really consider the in the seventies they'll consider the like psychosexual component yes. of these murders and stuff. You you don't see that really in in. Well, them. it's too tawdry, Sean. Well, but you do see discussion of that in the Jack the Ripper case, where it's unavoidable because he's murdering prostitutes. Exactly. Um, But a real-life Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. So, several people killed in 1911. Let's go back to the dark beginnings of the Axeman. And it starts actually even before 1911, because on August 13th of 1910, someone broke into the home of grocer August John Crudy and his wife, Harriet. Crudy, C-R-U-T-T-I. Italian name. And uh, once again, we're dealing with a grocery store owner here. Whoever came in forced open the kitchen door with a railroad shoe pin. Hmm. And proceeded to wake John up with axe blows to the head and chest.
1: Terrible way to get up.
0: Uh, yeah. <laughs>
1: Terrible alarm.
0: Uh, when... A bewildered and terrified Harriet sat up in bed. The assailant waved a meat cleaver at her and demanded money. So he's always double fisting weapons. Um, maybe cleaver blows. They, they, sometimes they use cleaver, uh, they use the, the, the words meat axe. Meat axe. Meat axe, which I think is a meat cleaver. <laughs>
1: Maybe they're confused, so they're like, let's just do half and
0: half. I mean, they say he had axe wounds to his head and chest, but they then they, they say he was waving a meat cleaver, and then they say the meat axe later on. The meat axe. So he's got a picture of a meat cleaver, I suppose. He's waving it at Harriet and demanding money. Harriet de- uh, grabbed some, some bills from a box under the pillow, and the attacker wordlessly grabbed the money out of her hand, and on the way out, he took Crudy's caged mockingbird and left.
1: Ugh, insult to injury.
0: He would... Uh, Imagine
1: hop- someone stealing Poe after beating us up.
0: I know. That's uh, horrible. Well, Poe would come back, though, which is nice. Because uh, this guy jumped the fence, walked a block away, and freed the bird on a nearby stoop. Obviously, a weird
1: the, thing to do. The
0: bird obviously did not come back like Poe would. But uh, a block away, Poe's going to be able to find home. I hope so. I don't like thinking about that.
1: What a weird thing to do. <laughs>
0: now, now, this is the first time we get a description of the attacker, although it is the earliest attack. Harriet said that the man who threatened her was white, in his mid-30s, about five foot six, with broad shoulders, uh, clean-shaven with dark hair, and wearing a working man's shirt, dark trousers, and a black derby hat. Hmm a working man's shirt is a specific style of shirt of the time. Um, But, you know, it's a shirt with buttons down the front. Ah. Um, I only say that because they say working man's shirt repeatedly (laughs) in this story. The following month, on September 20th, grocer Joseph... Oh, by the way, uh, Crudy survived his injuries. Mm -hmm. Um, This was not a murder, but it was a very scary attack. On September 20th, grocer Joseph Rizzetto and his wife, Conchetta were attacked in their sleep with a meat axe. Was it a cleaver? Was it an axe? We don't know. Yeah, I have in my notes here, meat cleaver, question mark? (laughs) Uh, Now, Joseph was hit twice in the face. Mm. Conchetta once in the face and once in the neck. Oh, God. And the attacker fleed out and over the front yard fence without taking anything from the home.
1: Well, they didn't have a bird, I guess.
0: (laughs) Yeah, he's only interested in avian treasures. man. Now, Joseph, obviously horribly injured, managed to pull his pistol out of his bedside drawer and fire it in the air to attract attention, and his neighbors rushed over, got the couple medical help, and both Rosettos survived. Wow. Very cool. Yeah. And what what Miriam Davis points out is these early attacks are... I mean, this is what you see with serial killers sometimes is... um, she describes them as tentative. I don't know if I describe waking someone up with a uh, uh, meat cleaver to the face tentative, but if you hit them twice, once in the neck and you don't kill them, I, I, I don't think this guy knew what he was after quite yet.
1: Well, yeah, I think he's still figuring out his urges. The thought just occurred to me kind of psychologically. Do you think that the bird thing could point to this guy being like an ex con of some sort?
0: The bird... Oh, okay. like he felt bad about the caged bird? Yeah. Uh, police did think that he was likely a an experienced criminal because he was obviously good at burglary. Well, he was good at breaking in. Right. That's the burglary part of burglary. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so they said probably an experienced professional burglar. So someone like that could definitely be in and out of prison or know people who are. Mm-hmm. Um. But there's no... Solid evidence that he was in jail before this time.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: He may have taken a break or maybe just stayed quiet until the following summer, but on June 27th, the Axeman would make what was possibly his first fatal attack. So, June 27th, 1911, this person broke into the home and, yes, grocery of Joe <laughs> and Mary Davi. The Davi's window was pried open with a railroad pin. Just like we saw a few attacks ago. Mm-hmm. Now, Joe Davi, very careful for a grocer. Um, Joe kept. Grocers wa- can be careful. Well, but Joe kept water bottles propped up over the bedroom door so that if someone was trying to come in, he had like a makeshift burglar alarm.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And he had a revolver on the bedside table, on top of the bedside table. So that those water bottles fall, Joe's just grabbing and firing. That's smart. It is smart when there's rumors of somebody attacking Italians in your neighborhood, I guess
1: we have an alarm system, and no one's knock on wood attacked Italians in our neighborhood.
0: I know, but what it just seems like
1: you don't have alarms back then, so you got to make do. No. There's probably a little crime going on, things like that,
0: yeah, for sure.
1: Maybe he owed some people money.
0: Well, but again, a lot of these, the historians do say a lot of these Italian businessmen in the area were solving their problems with each other with violence, so you, so you sort of had to stay frosty exactly. in that way, too. Yeah. Regardless, the water bottle alarm didn't work out for Joe Davi in this mm. case because the intruder quietly disarmed the water bottles. And Mary Davi woke up to find someone ransacking through her through the dresser with her husband grievously wounded beside her.
1: How did the intruder know about the water bottles?
0: He must have just seen them. This is one of the reasons police say he was an experienced burglar. He was like, Hmm. you know, looking for countermeasures like that. Interesting. And knowing how to move without, pass without trace, if you will. Joe Davi had been beaten with an axe, with such force that there was a 15 degree angle depressed into the mattress after his body was removed. And so here, maybe we see a little escalation from those earlier attacks. These are not tentative blows. Mm -hmm. These are serious, I'm going to kill you now blows. Now, when the figure in the room heard Mary, he turned and demanded money and picked up a porcelain mug and decked her in the face with it. And then fled without taking anything, despite his request for money. Uh, Mary said the attacker was white, clean-shaven, spoke unaccented English, and he wore a working man's shirt and black pants. Um, Joe was never able to provide details, unfortunately. He was rushed to the hospital, but died from his injuries the following day.
2: Hmm.
0: That was the last attack before 1917, and if this is the same attacker, it's not clear why he took a six-year break.
1: Maybe he got busted and went to jail.
0: That's the most likely thing. That's what Davis thinks, and and that's what I think, certainly. Uh, That this guy was, yeah, a professional criminal, and he was picked up for something else, probably burglary. And uh, he spent six years safely locked away, not for murder.
1: Could this guy have been some kind of mafia enforcer?
0: That has been brought up. The, The mafia didn't. We can talk about this a little more later, but the mafia didn't exist fully yet. Oh, well,
1: uh, okay, street gang enforcer.
0: Yeah, because the way, the, the way some of these businesses were being operated was a little bit of a gang mentality with all the kind of vendettas and violence. Um, and so there were enforcers and there were protection rackets and there were types of organized crime beginning to develop in these neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. And so it has been raised, and we will throw around some specific names later, actually. It has been, the possibility has been raised that this could have been an enforcer type or just the product of many separate vendettas between Italian families Mm -hmm. or vendetti, if you will. Um, (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) But I think there's a more compelling uh, theory to to subscribe to. And we can get into that later as well, of course. For now, we're going to get back to the uh, present, or at least the present of 1919, and get to the rest of the Axeman's crimes after the break. Ooh. 3 a.m., the comedy horror podcast that holds weekly gatherings around the campfire. Let me tell you what you're going to get. You're going to hear stories about demonic possessions, prison stabbings, skinwalkers, Glitches in the Matrix, Cult Leaders, Missing 411, Night Marchers, Operation Paperclip, Mesopotamian Devil Worship, and so many monsters it'll give Kanye West a runaway for his money. Pop and meme culture also aren't off-topic. A camp where laughs and scares are constantly competing for first place. We're just a group of friends, trying to bust each other's balls, find the best stories, and expand the circle in the process. 3AM, the comedy horror podcast, not for the faint or fragile of heart. Let's go. Welcome back. When last we left you, we had finished our flashback into the grisly attacks of 1910 and 1911 on Italian grocers in New Orleans, and we're flipping back to the modern day of 1919, now, remember, Carrie, there haven't been any murders for almost a year since the previous August. And the panic level in the city is starting to die down about these Axeman attacks.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: When on March 10th of 1919, screams were heard from the home of Charles and Rosie Cordamelia in Gretna, Louisiana, a uh, small suburb of New Orleans. Now, 69-year-old grocer and neighbor, Yorlando Giordano, rushed across the street to investigate. That's right. Uh, The Cortamiglias uh, lived in their home and grocery across the street from the Giordano's in their home and grocery.
1: (laughs) There's a Starbucks on every corner.
0: Uh, Yes, exactly. Um, As Yorlando got there, Rosie was standing in the doorway with a serious head wound. In her arms, she clutched the body of infant Mary the Uh couple's daughter, who had been killed with a single blow to the back of the neck. Mm. Charles was behind her, bleeding on the floor with another blow to his head. Both Cordomelia adults would survive with serious skull fractures, but of course Mary wouldn't make it. And nothing was stolen from the house, and yes, Carrie, before you ask, a back door panel had been chiseled away, and a bloody axe had been left on the back porch. Mm. Now, Uh, Charles was home from the hospital just two days later, but Rosie was in and out of consciousness and had to be held for a little while longer. When she woke up, and it sounds like after police and prosecutors had had a chance to talk to her, she was saying that Yorlando Giordano, the man who had discovered her, had done the attack along with his 18-year-old son, Frank. Wow. Now, Yorlando was, like I said, 69 years old and in poor health, And Frank was uh, over 200 pounds and over six feet tall and unlikely to fit through the back panel of the back door.
1: I was going to say, it was nice of Yorlando to run over and try to assist. He could have let him be and gotten rid of some of the competition.
0: Well, exactly. But that's kind of the point. They were competition. Mm -hmm. And so along with the police, I think, putting pressure on Rosie, she might have seen an opportunity to get rid of a neighbor who had apparently just sued her over something a couple of months before.
1: And then went to help.
0: And then went to help. He's not a monster.
1: I know, it's just very
0: interesting. Um, Now, Charles actually aggressively denied his wife's claims and ultimately divorced her after the murder trial was over. Whoa. But on the strength of Rosie's testimony, eyewitness testimony, Frank was sentenced to die and Yorlando was sentenced to life in prison. Whoa. Uh, meanwhile, over in New Orleans, the police commissioner, Frank Mooney, was proclaiming that this was definitely the work of his maniac from the previous summer. It was a full year later when Rosie admitted she had falsely accused the Jordanos. She said she had a dream where the Virgin Mary came. Um, I don't want to speak out of turn. She had a dream where a religious figure came, uh, a saint or the Virgin Mary came and uh, uh, told her she had to tell the truth and it would set her free. Um, the Giordanos were released because there was no evidence connecting them to the crime. Other I'd than...
1: divorce her, too. I mean, I know she's a victim, but shit. Yeah.
0: Um, yeah, and like I said, the families were business competitors, so it might not have been too hard to push her to deliver that false testimony. But for the police, they, were, they didn't want to hear any talk about serial killers. They saw, look, we deal with these Italians all the time. They, uh, this is what they do. They shoot each other. And so police thought, you know.
1: Do they axe each other?
0: It, well, that's a great that's a great point, Carrie. Uh, and I'm not saying it was good police work. Again, the back door panel's chiseled away. I think it's pretty clear axe man work. Um, and ultimately, the Giordanos were released, thankfully, uh, after that. Yeah. Remember I said this had more connections to Jack the Ripper?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: We're not murdering prostitutes here. We're not murdering anyone, but our killer's not murdering prostitutes I hope we're not here.
1: murdering prostitutes,
0: Sean. Our killer's not uh, murdering prostitutes here, but he did take on a Jack the Ripper affectation that suggests that he was at least very familiar with that crime. Because a letter was delivered to the New Orleans Times-Picayune on March 13th, 1919.
1: A classic Dear Boss?
0: Uh, a Yes, a Dear Boss letter, if you will. Uh, the Times Picayune might not have been sure of what to do with such a letter because they published it several days later. It reads as follows. Hell, March 13th, 1919. And uh, you'll recall, of course, Gary, that famously one of those ripper letters mm-hmm. is says from hell at the top. Big fan. Um, yeah, so this guy's a big fan. Esteemed mortal, they have never caught me and they never will. They have never seen me, for I am invisible, even as the ether that surrounds your earth. I am not a human being, but a spirit and a demon from the hottest hell. I am what you Orlinians and your foolish police call the Axeman. When I see fit, I shall come and claim other victims. I alone know whom they shall be. I shall leave no clue except my bloody axe, besmeared with blood and brains of he whom I have sent below to keep me company. If you wish, you may tell the police to be careful not to rile me. Of course, I am a reasonable spirit. I take no offense at the way they have conducted their investigations in the past. In fact, they have been so utterly stupid as to not only amuse me, but his satanic majesty, Francis Joseph, etc. But tell them to beware. Let them not try to discover what I am, for it were better that they were never born than to incur the wrath of the X-Man. I don't think there is any need of such a warning for I'm sure the police will always dodge me, as they have in the past. They are wise and know how to keep away from all harm. Undoubtedly, you Orlinians think of me as a most horrible murderer, which I am. But I could be much worse if I wanted to. (laughs) Fuck off. (laughs) If, If I wished, I could pay a visit to your city every night. At will, I could slay thousands of your best citizens, for I am in close relationship with the Angel of Death. It's
1: big talk from someone who leaves half of the victims alive.
0: Only at the beginning, Carrie. He's getting better.
1: (laughs) I don't think that's better, but okay.
0: Now, to be exact, at 12.15, earthly time... Fuck off. ...on next Tuesday night, I'm going to pass over New Orleans. In my infinite mercy, I'm going to make a little proposition to you people. Here it is. I am very fond of jazz music. And I swear by all the devils in the nether regions that every person shall be spared in whose home a jazz band is in full swing at the time I have just mentioned.
1: A full band?
0: If everyone has a jazz band going, well, then so much the better for you people. One thing is certain, and that is that some of your people who do not jazz it out on that specific <laughs> Tuesday night... Stop. If there be any, we'll get the axe. Well as I am cold and crave the warmth of my native Tartarus. (laughs) Fuck off. And it is about time I leave your earthly home. I will cease my discourse, hoping that thou wilt publish this, that it may go well with thee. I have been, am, and will be the worst spirit that ever existed, either in fact or realm of fantasy. The Axeman. This guy sucks. So a lengthy letter. He seems to like the look of his own prose, if Mm. not the sound of his own voice. Mm -hmm. One interesting thing that a couple of writers I read uh, pointed out is that this appears to be a letter from obviously a literate person, obviously a person who was up on...
1: Tartarus.
0: And a person who was up on, you know, the events of the past few decades, even abroad. He had read about Jack the Ripper.
1: It's basically a Jack the Ripper fanfic.
0: It is a Jack the Ripper (laughs) fanfic. Um, he's really he's putting on more errors than Jack, though. Jack had some maybe like on purpose misspellings and stuff. This guy wants to appear very erudite, and he references current events and uh, the Bible and jazz. Jazz, of course. Uh, That that's an interest. Yeah, we'll talk touch on that in a moment. But some writers have pointed out that, like, it's a pretty amateurish thing to end a letter with, well, I've got to go now. <laughs> yeah. Because you, you're writing a letter. You don't have to go now. You could have written it in two sittings. You don't have to excuse yourself. You're not actually leaving. The person can read it at their leisure. It makes no sense. And it's something that uh, children do when they're writing a letter. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying this was a child, but I'm, it's saying it's someone who didn't have, like, finishing formal education of the time.
1: Well, either that or he's like, I've been so dramatic up to here. I don't even know how to, like, be the most dramatic, like a, a final flourish. After so he's like, well, I've got to go back to hell. Like, after, what's more dramatic than that?
0: After those who don't jazz it out will get the axe. He's Jazz like,
1: it out.
0: Well, as I'm cold.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> where, then I, I'm going to go, go, go back to the fires of hell. Like, you know. He's trying to end with a a big bang.
0: Um, the jazz thing is interesting. It's part of what has f- seared this into the public consciousness because people were scared of the Axeman. Mm-hmm. And because of this Letters Publishing, people did, on of that course. night, uh, listen to jazz. They did jazz it out. And jazz was heard loudly in the neighborhoods.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, and never stopped.
0: In fact, a few short months later, jazz musician Joseph John Davila released a piece of sheet music called The Mysterious Axeman's Jazz, parenthesis, Don't Scare Me, Papa. <laughs> Stop. Don't Scare Me, Papa. In nineteen, uh, in the, that same year, 1919. It's a piece that he claims he wrote while waiting out the Axeman's terrible vigil on that jazz-filled night.
1: Do we have a recording of, of any version of this?
0: Uh, we do, and let's take a listen right now. So kind of a bop. It's very perky. It's uh, definitely the most success that Davila ever saw in his career. Uh, And in fact, some true crime writers and some historians, Davis included, uh, suggest that uh, Davila may also have written the Axeman letter to the Times-Picayune. Because it would have drummed up interest for his song later that year.
1: Interesting. I mean, there are theories that the Jack the Ripper letters aren't by the actual killer.
0: I think. Or I th- at least some of them. I think it's like almost fully agreed that there's no way they're all yeah. real.
1: Um, But I don't. That's a lot of foresight. So, so you create this jazz craze well, he could attached have... to this killer, and then you come up with a
0: song. Well, you send the letter out there. That's the first move. And then you see if it gets the desired effect. And if it does, everybody listens to jazz and becomes a big news story. Then you release a song that you you had already written and just call it The Mysterious Axeman's Jazz now.
1: Mm -hmm. I mean, it is very, (laughs) very perky for a song called The Mysterious Axeman's Jazz. Don't scare me,
0: Papa. Don't scare me, Papa. No one's scaring you in that song.
1: So what do you think? Do you Uh, think The Axeman really wrote that?
0: No, I probably not. I mean, he could have, I guess. Like, BTK was a was that kind of an idiot.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and the self-importance of it tracks... Zodiac. The self-importance of it tracks with a serial killer. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other hand, you know, I don't know. We don't have any reason. It's not like one of those ones where he gives details of the next crime or something, where we have any reason to believe that the Axeman did this. He also... There's it's this is the only connection this story has to jazz.
1: Right. You know, it seems more of an Italian grocery story up to this point.
0: Danny Houston's Axe Man is like carrying around a silver trumpet. <laughs> you know. Uh that's not this guy. I think this guy might have just hated Italians.
1: Yeah, it's not as fun, obviously. No. No, it's not. The only thing I love more than I hate Italians is jazz.
0: That's right. Now, that Tuesday night, as it turns out, came and went without incident. Mm
2: -hmm. And there
0: would be no more Axeman attacks until that August. When on August 10th of 1919, grocer Steve Boca says he awoke to a dark figure looming over him. And then quickly lost consciousness again. Uh, When Steve woke up, he ran into the street to investigate the intruder. And it was only then that he realized he had a massive head wound.
1: I was going to say, he just fell back to sleep?
0: No, he was hit in the head with an axe. Boy, okay. Which will make you fall asleep really quick. Sure. So you got (laughs) to... you got to admire his get up and go to be like, he's halfway into the, he's across the block before he realizes there's, um, you know, brains coming out of his head. Mm. He ran to neighbor Frank Janusa's home before collapsing on the floor. Boca would recover from his injuries and police found that there was nothing taken from the home. And once again, a back door panel had been chiseled away
2: Mm.
0: on September 3rd, 1919. This crime also sometimes attributed to the ax man, Sarah Lauman was found by her neighbors, unconscious and missing teeth from a massive head wound. Uh, She was a young woman who lived on her own, so her neighbors came just to check on her. And they ended up breaking into her house when she didn't answer and found her lying there on the ground. Um, Sarah said the intruder had entered through an open window and attacked her with a blunt object, but she couldn't remember anything else. Um, There was a bloody axe found on her front lawn and she would later recover. Now, Sarah is not a grocer nor Italian, and there wasn't the, like, back door panel being chiseled away. Mm-hmm. So this could just be a different, separate axe attack?
1: Well, I mean, the, the chisel thing, it doesn't really throw me off, because why do all the work if, if you already no one- have a window open, right. you
0: know? Right, but she doesn't fit the profile of the victims, I guess.
1: Yeah, but there was another... Um, s- well, not single, but like a woman by herself that was pregnant. Yes. So doesn't doesn't seem too out of the realm of possibility. No.
0: I guess if this guy has like two different profiles he likes to go for.
1: I think maybe it's just the location.
0: On October 27th, 1919, one last grocer was slain in New Orleans. Mike Pepitone was found by his wife... After hearing a commotion in the house, covered in his own blood, his blood all over the room as well, including, mm. she said, over their portrait of the Virgin Mary. Um, this has been connected to the Axeman and described as an Axeman murder because of the Italian uh, grocery connection and the time frame. Um, but our friend Miriam Davis says this was a gun attack, that the, the, that Pepitone was shot to death. Oh, now, in a possibly apocryphal story, Pepitone's widow supposedly went on to shoot a man named Joseph Mumfrey, or Joseph Mumfrey, one or the other, um, either for revenge or for killing, either for revenge for killing her husband, or because this Mumfrey went to her to extort money, quote, or I'll kill you like I killed your husband, kind of thing. That's not our direct quote, <laughs> mm-hmm. quote. Um, because the story may never have happened. Um, in this story, she was acquitted for self defense uh in the murder of this joseph Mumphrey character um now, true crime writer Colin Wilson, in his encyclopedia of uh true crime
2: mm-hmm. we
1: ca- might have that <laughs> he,
0: he, uh we do he calls this an urban legend um because he can't find any record of this shooting or of Joseph Mumphrey, or of anyone dying in New Orleans in that year named Joseph Mumphrey, although he does note that Mumphrey was a popular New Orleans name at the time.
1: Interesting. Uh,
0: Now, another true crime writer, J. Robert Nash, says that there was a guy in the neighborhood named Frank, quote, Doc (laughs) Mumphrey, That was his nickname, Mm -hmm. Um, who may have been a hitman. This is Nash's theory. May have been a hitman or enforcer working for the early nascent kind of organized crime families, uh, collecting protection money from Italian grocers. Um, The evidence for this revolves around uh, newspaper accounts of the time do mention Frank Doc. Mumfrey or Mumfrey, again um, the spelling's unsure as the lead suspect in the shooting of a couple named Tony and Mary Chiambra. Tony and Mary were um, shot to death in their home in 1912 by an intruder and this uh, Frank Doc Mumfrey who was investigated for that murder uh, also went by the alias, apparently Leon Joseph Mumfrey so he could have been the same one who came and shot Mike Pepitone and was ultimately, supposedly, killed by his widow. Hmm. Uh, the problem with a crime from this long ago is uh, local records aren't very good, and we don't have any rock solid on any of this. But I think this could nicely tie together at least Pepitone's murder with the murder of Tony and Mary Chiambra, um, and this idea of a a guy running around and collecting money that was owed by these uh, these Italian families.
1: Or at least asking for it and then just saying to hell with it, I've already exacted our revenge. Um, yeah. But maybe making sure they know why he's there by asking for the money. Mm-hmm.
0: But Davis thinks the last of the Axeman attacks in New Orleans was the August 10th attack on Steve Boca. Hmm. Now that wouldn't be the last attack against a an Italian grocer with the same modus operandi in Louisiana. Uh, Joseph Sparrow and his daughter would be murdered in Alexandria, just a few miles away, in December of 1920. Giovanni Orlando in DeRitter, January 1921, and Frank Scalisi in Lake Charles, Louisiana, in April of 1920, in April of 1921. Hmm. Now, this Frank Monfrey did die in December of 1921, supposedly, according to Nash. So uh, if you want to put him in there as the killer, uh, it, it would make sense that we can't find any crimes after that if uh, this enforcer was just killing people who weren't paying up in time. Um, it seems like bad business to kill so many of...
1: Well, he the, left a lot of them alive. Your clients. You're just
0: maiming some of them. Um, so the thing that I find more compelling... Is this idea of an Italian obsessed racist white serial killer who probably didn't do the attacks on Schneider or Lauman or Pepitone, the two young women in that last grocer? Mm -hmm. uh, Probably didn't do the shooting of Tony and Mary Chiambra. The rest of these aren't shootings, they're axe attacks. Mm -hmm. Um, So those three would have been, those four would have been random attacks, family disputes, or. Yes, vendetta among Italian immigrants. uh, Possibly with a little bit of that organized crime protection racket thing uh, thrown in, if you want to take uh, J. Robert Nash at his word about Frank Doc Mumphrey. Mm -hmm. The rest of the attacks paint to me a picture of a skilled professional burglar, a white man who uh, resented growing Italian domination of the city's economy.
1: They hate us because they ain't us.
0: He would have started out stealing money from Italian businesses, feeling that they owed it to him. Mm -hmm. And um, these at some point escalated, whether it was uh, through getting almost caught or or what have you, escalated into violence and targeted murders, you know, maybe with the intention of driving Italians out of the city with fear. Mm. It is... um, you know, pretty much universally agreed that if the same guy did do all these murders, and let's be honest, Carrie, the, the MO, especially with the chisel. The, the
1: chisels and the axes, anything that has like both of those going on, I could see it.
0: So the early spree and the later spree, probably the same guy, which means he was probably locked up um, for other criminal activity from 1911 to
2: 1917.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's my take. But that is the story of the Axeman of New Orleans. There is no answer here. There's no... The the Axeman likely was never caught. Well, no, the Axeman certainly was never caught. And unless it was this uh, Mumphrey fella who was killed by Pepitone's widow, then the Axeman likely never saw justice. Mm -hmm. Um, But he did eventually stop killing or maybe just moved far enough away to drop off the radar. Huh. So Carrie, as an Italian, as a true crime fan, <laughs> a as proud
1: Italian, mm-hmm. as a
0: history buff, as a as everything, as Caroline Ferrante. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think?
1: Well, surprisingly, Sean. I mean, I knew the vague stuff about the Axeman, but what I really knew was about the the jazz letter. Yes,
0: yes that's what people remember. That's and it, the thing, and that's not the core of the story at all.
1: No, but that's like the fun part. Like, oh. We have to have a party so a guy won't come kill us. Like it's very scream, uh but the opposite because they always come and kill people at the party. But it is fun though. It is fun until the murders. I I did not know anything about the Italian angle, and that's coming from someone who's descended from an immigrant Italian family, and is very interested in true crime. So I think that's very interesting that that's kind of not really talked about. I mean, you know, once you get into it, I'm sure, but. Uh, just the vague stuff. It's always like the jazz angle and the axe and New Orleans. Like that's, those are the the biggies about this case. And it's unsolved. I, I think I was pretty sure that that was the case.
0: Um, at the time, it's not like they didn't know how to investigate this as a serial killer. Yeah. So like, despite the police superintendent saying like, I, the, I think these are all being done by the same person. You know, the one that happened the next town over, the police still just investigated that as, oh, these Italians are shooting each other again. Mm-hmm. Uh, they just didn't know how to deal with this kind of crime.
1: The race angle is very interesting. Um, I think you, you got to think it is probably some kind of racism situation. You don't really think of Italians with New Orleans uh, as, a, as a dominant race in the area. Um but yeah, especially with that kind of escalation from such a small percentage to such a big percentage of those businesses being Italian and maybe some people looking at it as getting above their station. I mean, I'm sure people did, but like violently, you know, because if they're working, you know, in some kind of indentured servitude at these plantations, which were recently freed of slaves, um, some people might have thought that, you know, they they are like, uh, like slaves in a way. And just like people are baselessly racist against black people for, you know, really stupid reasons. And we've talked about that recently. Um, you know, it's just a class thing. And uh, so it's very, very interesting to me. Um, it makes me, you know, sad for these people because they managed to make a living in such a difficult situation and they were probably doing fairly well. So someone felt like they had to get punished for that.
0: Well, that's where we're going to leave our discussion on the Axeman of New Orleans. Um, That did make me want a a nice, like a julep or a a, a rum punch or something.
1: Or a muffaletta.
0: A muffaletta. Ooh. Yeah, now I'm hungry. Um, okay, a beignet. Shit, okay. We gotta <laughs> book a trip to New Orleans now, just to eat for four days.
1: Uh, that's what you do, right?
0: Uh, that's what I do. <laughs> uh, okay, next week we are going to keep the axe murders uh, going. Sorry, listener. <laughs> well, not uh, the stories of axe murders. The um, perhaps most famous axe murder in American history, the Velisca axe murder. Um and that might spin off. This might turn into a three parter, I can't be sure, because the Velisca murder does connect us in a in a very interesting tangential way to um potentially dozens of other family axe murders. So Oh my. Um yeah, get all that get all that good stuff. Axe Axe Murder Fever, next two weeks here on Ain't It Scary, I'm calling it right now.
1: I must axe you a question. Yes? Well, that was really just it. I was just making the little pun.
2: Uh.
1: (laughs) Hi, Vanessa. Hi, Amy. And hi, Hi, true true crime crime fans. fans. We're the co hosts of She Goes By Jane. Every week, we'll be covering the story of a missing or unidentified woman in the United States. Stories you may have heard before. And ones whose stories didn't make it into the news. We've been covering these stories for a while. First in Amy's book of poetry, Doe. And then in Vanessa's documentary, She. But now we want to share them with you here on She Goes by Jane. And each week we'll be joined by a special guest who will read a poem in honor of the women we talk about. Can we say who? We can say who. We'll be joined by actresses like Coco Jones and Gabrielle Ruiz. And musicians like Stephanie Quayle and Kelly Moneymaker along with authors like Louise Penny and Catherine McKenzie. So check out She Goes by Jane wherever you get your podcasts, or check out Evergreen Podcasts and their true crime channel, Killer Podcasts. We can't wait to bring you these stories. (laughs) Let's take a trip to the Bizarre Bazaar. (laughs) The gong always gets me.
0: It's the best, Carrie. Smell those spices in the air.
1: (laughs) On March 5th, after 107 years, scientists have finally found the remains of the Endurance, the lost ship of Antarctic explorer Sir Ernest Shackleton.
0: Yes! This is my father's favorite, like, person in history. Mm -hmm. Certainly favorite explorer. He was obsessed with Ernest Shackleton. So, I was very excited to see this, and I actually thought about doing some, uh, like an an episode on Arctic and Antarctic exploration, which could be very scary. Oh,
1: yeah. I mean, we did the Everest stuff, so I think it totally fits in with our oeuvre.
0: Yeah. So, listeners, let us know if you'd like to hear about that, because the things these guys dealt with, like uh, on a ship just stuck in ice for six months or whatever. Um, Really, that's that's a terrifying situation to be in, and sort of the extreme ends of the human condition. Um, I ended up not doing it for this week because we just did so much time with uh, Sea Bound yes. Horrors,
1: so we just you know had to light it and it, lighten it up with the axe murders.
0: Three weeks of axe murders, Terry. <laughs>
1: The Endurance was found at the bottom of the Weddell Sea, where it sank in 1915 after being crushed by sea ice during Shackleton's Imperial Trans-Antarctic Expedition, which set out to make the first land crossing of Antarctica. Shackleton and crew had been forced to escape the wreck on foot and in small boats. They camped out on the ice for a while, and then somehow they all managed to get to safety. So, spoiler alert, it's a happy ending. That's nice.
0: Yes. It's, it's truly an incredible story.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: The ship, having sat almost two miles below the surface of the water for over a century, remains in mar- remarkable condition. It is still intact, upright, and it still has its name visible across the stern. The project to find the final resting place of the Endurance was undertaken by the Falklands Maritime Heritage Trust using an icebreaker and remotely operated submersibles. And I'm sure the icebreaker was something like two truths and a lie, or
0: yes, exactly. Yeah, you gotta <laughs> you gotta play a nice uh, nice game. What what's yours? Two truths and a lie. Yes.
1: Hmm. I just thought of like a really good one recently because we play those Jackbox games mm-hmm. where you mm-hmm. know it's, what is it? What's the jack the one where fibbage enough fibbage, about you? Yes. Uh, two truths and a lie.
0: Wait, we shouldn't play this because we know each other so already.
1: Yeah, it's fair. Well, <laughs> okay. we could we could say it, and then our our listeners can guess. Okay. Okay. Two truths and a lie. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I'm when I'm whenever I'm on the spot with things like this, I always think about how boring I am.
0: But you're not. You've done tons of things that nobody's done. Like what? I can't tell because it'll ruin the
1: game. <laughs> I need help.
0: All right. L- listen, on our news next week, we're going to yes. check back in with Two Truths and a Lie. Two Truths How about and a Lie. That?
1: Icebreaker. So it says Dr. John Shears, the mission leader, quote, We have successfully completed the world's most difficult shipwreck search battling constantly shifting sea ice, blizzards, and temperatures dropping down to negative 18 degrees Celsius. We have achieved what many people said was impossible.
0: And what Ernest Shackleton did with some dogs and uh, holes in his shoes, or whatever.
1: <laughs> well, no, he didn't, no, he I didn't know. find yeah. the boat. The wreck was uncovered on the 100th anniversary of Ernest Shackleton's funeral and has been designated as a monument under the International Antarctic Treaty, meaning it cannot be disturbed in any way and no physical artifacts will be removed. So, pretty cool story.
0: Yeah, it would be... Nice to solve a mystery for once. Quite an ordeal to remove it anyway. (laughs) Oh, not the
1: whole thing, Um, but like none of the stuff... You know, whereas in like the Titanic, they've taken a bunch of stuff off of there.
0: They had a lot of nice stuff on the Titanic. I don't know <laughs> that there was like like thousands of China tea sets. No, on, but maybe it'd endurance. be cool
1: if it was like an old,
0: you know dog skeleton. What? Mm. It's probably some of those. Ugh.
1: That's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary? And check out our newly revamped website at (laughs) ain'titscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash Scary, And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and also now on Spotify. We'll be forever grateful.
0: Special thanks to our beloved top-tier patrons, Nate Curtis, Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, Comfy Mike, Alex Nakutis, Ryan Regan, and Christy Atchison. Uh, come and join us over there. We're having a ton of fun. And coming up soon, we've got uh, uh, some really grim uh, minisodes on the Tenmouth Electron and Carla Faye Tucker to tie in with our Axe content, <laughs> and because uh, it is Axe Month, of course, and... Oh, Call of Cthulhu Part 3 as well. So mm-hmm. uh, uh, tons of stuff coming on Patreon. Come over, get at us, and, uh, and enjoy. More importantly than that, honestly, just share this thing, tell your friends about it, um, steal their phones, and subscribe for them.
1: Mm-hmm. See you next Thursday.
0: Show created by Sean and Carrie McCabe. Music by Kyle Ryan. You can find Kyle at his YouTube channel, Music is a Verb.
1: This has been a production of Longboy Media.